Isaiah um, is going to be tackling an issue here that is not necessarily enjoyable or comfortable for us to hear. Um, and, and it's going to be on particularly the issue of God's anger. Not exactly the warmest and fuzziest of topics, I know. But um, it's here. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have a God that has emotions. He's not some houseplant that sits over on the side of your table. He's not a statue made out of gold. Um, he is a living spirit. He's, he's, he exemplifies personhood. In fact, all of us have emotions as human beings because he does, and we reflect him as, uh, and, and are made in his image. And so we're dealing with a, a subject that we honestly, admittedly, would rather avoid, um, and that is that God does feel anger. And, and Isaiah is going to address this pretty uh, starkly here in these verses. Um, but we, we need to recognize that even though we may wretch at the idea that God is angry uh, and has judgment for sin, what we need to recognize more, even more than that is that the beauty of the gospel flows from the, these hard words. Like the reason the gospel is so sweet is because we know what the alternative could be. And, and I remember um, when I was in high school, I took an American literature class and I went to public school, which you're probably not surprised by. Um, and <laughs> uh, but I went to public school and, and I took an American lit class that had, um, had us read an excerpt from a sermon from the 1800s. And the sermon was uh, preached by this man named Jonathan Edwards who was used uh, by God to help spark the Great Awakening uh, in the, uh, the colonies and things like that. And so um, he preached a sermon that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was pretty sensational in its time. Uh, he spoke about the wrath of God. The, he uses this very strong imagery of all of us being like spiders dangling by a thread and God's holding us over the fire. It's very, very, you know, crazy. And that's why uh, they wanted us to read it because, you know, it makes you not like God very much. Um, and so, and I remember my teacher um, just being very angry about how angry God was in this sermon. You know, she, she was like, I can't believe that he would preach a sermon about God's anger. Isn't it all about love and mercy? And, and yes, I mean, there's, obviously that's, if we had actually read the whole sermon, we would have gotten to that, but we didn't read the whole sermon. We read just the snippets that were kind of the angry parts. Uh, we didn't get to the part where he concluded by Jesus can save you from this. <laughs> so, of course, they didn't tell us that part. Uh, but uh, I remember my, my teacher, I just remember just the irony of my teacher being angry at how angry God was. And I'm like, this is, this is well, okay, here we go. Um, so, and, and she was angry about everything. She really was. I don't... Every day, every day, it's like, oh, it's like a meat locker in here. It's so cold. Why don't these people turn on the heat? And every day it was something with her, and I, I loved it. Um, so uh, anyways, but we read that. And I remember as a high schooler, as a junior or whatever I was when I took that class, I remember reading that segment, and I knew, I, I grew up in church, and I, and I knew the gospel, and I believed in Jesus, and I'm like, this, if this is all this is, yeah, this is not a God that anybody would, would actually want to 
follow. Um, but so what I did was I, I went on and I figured out what the rest of the sermon had to say, and I was like, oh, okay, that's better than I, than I was led to believe uh, from this textbook. But um, we, we do have this initial, like, oh, the reaction to God's anger because we don't, we don't like it. We don't like it because we also know intuitively that we are, in some ways, the objects of that anger because we're the sinners. And so who wants to be the object of God's anger? No one does. Um, but we, we need to get to the text here and just see how um, th- this is a real thing that God has, a real feeling and real emotion and real, real judgment for sin. But it doesn't stay that way. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's where we're going to ultimately get to this morning. Um, so let's start in verse uh, 8. And as we work through this, we're going to see four, um, four different causes of God's anger in uh, Israel. Four different reasons why God is angry. He's basically just using Isaiah to lay out, these are the reasons why I'm angry at you and why my judgment is, is going to come upon you. And then in verse, uh, once we get down to <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 5, God's going to explain how that judgment's going to come across and how it's going to happen. Uh, but we'll get there. So first we got to get through the four ways or four reasons rather why God is angry. So let's look at verse uh, 8 through 12 to start. It says this, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now that last line in verse 12, for all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still is going to be repeated four times through this text. So the whole theme that Isaiah is trying to get people to hear is that God is angry at you and he's going to judge you. And, and here's the reasons why. That's, that's what's happening. And, and we got to realize that Isaiah was written to a particular people at a particular time in history. And, and this is not a bunch of innocent little helpless people. These are rebellious sinners that God is trying to get their attention so that they will turn to him. And so the first thing that we see in this, the reason God's anger is being kindled against them, it's in the text here. It is uh, primarily found in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, who say, in pride and in arrogance of heart. And then they have these things that they say. God's anger is, is kindled towards them because of their stubborn pride. And this is the theme that we've been seeing all throughout Isaiah, right? I mean, we've been in Isaiah for a few months now, a couple months, and we've been seeing this issue of pride happening all the time. It's always being the, the primary issue because all sin flows from pride. That's where it starts. It's, a, it's an attitude of the heart that is not soft to the Lord and instead is just going to dig in our heels and do whatever we want to do. This stubbornness of pride is, is, 
engaged and active here in Israel, and God is angry at them for their refusal to repent. They're basically saying in their pride in verse 10 and 11, or verse 10 rather, um, they say this, they say, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Basically what they're saying is, is God, do whatever you want. We're just going to, we'll fix it. We'll fix it. Whatever you destroy, we'll just put back. Like that's, that's arrogant, right? I mean, that's extremely arrogant. They're, that's their mentality. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter what God does to us. We're just going to fix it because we're better than he is. And that's, that's the stubbornness of their pride. <clears throat> and ultimately, the result of that, that pride is going to be their, the invasion of their nation. And that's what we see in verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west will devour Israel with open mouth. That they're, th- This is what's going to happen. God's mad because you're prideful and you're not repentant and you're not going to change here. And so here's the result. We're going to send your enemies in. Um, that's, that's where he's at there. Now, <clears throat> the second thing uh, is in verse 13 through 17. It says this, The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies at the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, nor has compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Uh, the second reason that God is angry here, according to this text, is that they are unrepentant. Like, right in verse 13, the people did not turn to him. That's what repent means. It means to turn. It means to change course, change direction. And, and so again, they're, they're in their stubbornness and pride. They're in their arrogance, they're, and they're refusing to repent. And so God's anger is kindled at them. And what he's going to do as a result of that anger is he's going to take their leaders away from, him, from them. And that's what's described here in the rest of this, or cutting off Israel's head and tail. And then it goes on to explain how the head is is the, uh, the elder, the honored man, and the prophet is, is the tail. And all, all these people who are leading the people, are, are, they're going to be gone. Israel won't have any direction or human direction or leadership in, in their uh, nation for a season. And so the Lord is angry because of their unrepentance. Thirdly, look at verse 18 um, through 21. It says, for wickedness burns like a fire. Their wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, 
and his hand is stretched out still. So here again, we're seeing growing wickedness in the nation. And this is the third source of God's anger. They're growing wickedness. And, and look at how it's described, right? That their, their wickedness burns like a fire. It's like this out of control wildfire that, that is just burning everything in its path. Um, and, and it goes on to talk about how the people themselves are treating each other like fuel for the fire. They're just like, hey, we'll heap this person on there and this person on there. We're just, we don't care who's hurt in the process. Th- some people are eating and others are hungry. There's all, this pro- all these problems and there's infighting among the tribes of Israel. And so here we're seeing this growing wickedness, which ultimately is going to result in their self-destruction. Paul says in, in Galatians that we have to be careful that if we continue to bite and devour one another, we will be consumed by one another. Right? And so this whole idea of this infighting and, and just fighting amongst ourselves, it tears everything apart and it destroys everything in its path like a wildfire. So we see his anger at their pride, their unrepentance, their growing wickedness. And I want to highlight that because we, we got to recognize that God's anger is not in the context of them just being really good, righteous people who love him. That's not the situation we're in. We're not talking about a, a bunch of people who are just trying to do their best and, and God just has given them a hard time. No, this, this is about the justice of God over people who do deserve to be judged. Like no one in this room or anywhere else in the world wants to live in a world where people who do harm to others just go, go free without any kind of justice. No one wants to live in that world. We have a system of justice to bring about the punishments that people uh, deserve through their actions. And we applaud when things go well in that system. And of course, we're mourned when things are misused in that system. And there are times where our, where our justice system fails people. We know that. But we, we know that the system isn't, the, the solution is not to throw the justice system out because then there's no consequence for anything and we're all, we're, we're all going to hate the world that we live in in that, in that situation. So God is dealing with people, his people, his covenant people, the people that he has been bringing out of Egypt and redeeming and giving a land to and all of these things that he's done for them and they've turned their backs on him and so he's bringing about their, his anger is leading to their judgment. And then there's one more. Uh, it's in chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Um, it says this, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of, of, of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So here's, the, here's what they're asking or here's what they're, they're doing to incur the, the anger of God. They're, they're living in a society of injustice. I sort of talked about it just a moment ago. 
But if we look at what's happening here, these people are oppressing uh, those who are the least in the society. Right? We, we live, they lived in a time when there was no social security, any kind of safety net of any kind. And so if you were a widow or if you were fatherless, you were absolutely de- dependent on the help of other people, the generosity and kindness of others. Or if you had extended family, they, they could help you. But here you have the, those people that are in that absolute poverty, absolute need, and they're just being turned aside. They're being, in fact, not just turned aside, but they're being abused. Widows are their spoil, fatherless their prey. So it's not just that they're ignoring the needs of the poor, but they're actually taking advantage of the poor. That's what's happening. And who who could stand by and look at that and go, oh, no big deal. None of us would. And so why would God? God's looking down at this people and he's going, I'm just horrified by what I'm seeing. And so he has his anger. Now, in, in, we're not going to look uh, deeply at the rest of chapter uh, 10, um, 5 through 19 because um, really don't, I don't want to just get lost in the weeds here, but essentially, and I'm, I won't even uh, read them all, all of this, but basically what God is going to say here is that because of the... the injustice and the growing wickedness and the unrepentance and the stubborn pride, the people of Israel are going to be judged. And God's going to use the Assyrians to get his judgment across. He's going to send in the Assyrians. Look at verse 5. Now this is interesting because while God is going to use the Assyrians, he also is angry at them for their wickedness. So he's using an imperfect uh, enemy to, to do his bidding, which is interesting. But look at verse 5. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in my hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread on them like the mire of the streets." But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karkamesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols? as I have done to Samaria and her images. And he goes on and continues to talk about that. But um, here's the point. Right? He's, he's saying on, on one hand, um, Assyria is also the object of God's anger, but he's going to serve God's purposes for his people, and he's going to send them in to take, uh, take uh, Israel into judgment. And, and so he's preparing them. And this is the other thing we need to realize. None of this should have blindsided Israel. When they, were, when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, that should not have come as a surprise because they'd been told in advance, this is going to happen if you don't repent. God gave them ample opportunity to, to turn and they never did. And so God executed his, his judgment through Assyria. Um, now, and, and through Babylon as well and uh, we, that's another subject. But here's, here's the question that we need to get to. 
Um, that this is all really heavy, like really not pleasant, right? Like we don't want to sit here and go, "Oh man, God is angry at me, and God's going to stretch out His hand against me." And and so I, I want to just take a moment to think about the question. Uh, that's that's in verse uh, three of chapter ten. Look at look at what's asked. There's two questions in here. What will you do on the day of punishment? in the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? To whom will you flee for help? It's an, this is the question that obviously is a rhetorical question in the context, and it's basically saying, well, you can't really escape this. God's going to do this, and you don't really have a whole lot of opportunity to get away from it. But there's something, as we look back on the history of redemption, that we see in this question that is very important for us. To whom will you flee for help? This is the irony of the gospel. The place that we flee, or the person to whom we flee, is God himself. This is amazing, that God is the one who's angry at sin and sinners, and yet is also the one that we find our refuge and safety in. How is that possible? How is it possible that we, as sinful, sinful people, deserving God's wrath and deserving of judgment and deserving of all the things that Israel was deserving of, because we're not better than they were, all of us deserve God to be angry at us. And the question is, is where are we going to flee? If, if God's coming after us, where can we go? And the gospel tells us that it's God himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one to whom we flee for safety from God's wrath. How can that be? How can God, <clears throat> who's angry at sin and sinners also be the one that we find our safety in when he's the one who's angry at us. Well, there's a very important word in the New Testament that I want to talk about with you today. And it's, it's, uh, it's mentioned four times in the New Testament, twice in 1 John, once in Hebrews, and once in Romans. Um, but I'm, we're going to go to Romans because I think it, it makes the clearest uh, teaching on the issue. Romans chapter 325. If you want to turn there or, or uh, tap over there, whatever it is. Um, Romans 3, we're going to look at the whole context here, not just verse 25, but there's a, a very important word in verse 25. And, and I will say this, if you have a translation that is not the English Standard Version, that's okay, but it may have a different word or a different phrase. Um, and and that's, that's all right, but, but we gotta, uh, I'll make a case for why I think the word that the ESV chooses to use is the, is the best choice. Um, and and here's, here's the word. Uh, verse 25, it says, um, we'll start at the end of verse 24, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, I bet you've used that word 20 times today already in your conversations. Uh, it's not a word that we use. It's not a word we use. Um, but when you look it up in the English dictionary, um, the, the word propitiation actually conveys the meaning of the Greek word that is, that is being used there. And, and 
the word that Paul uses that propitiation nails and, and actually gets to the meaning of is that God's anger is appeased. Propitiation is a word that means that, you're, that, the, that someone's anger is satisfied or appeased. A lot of translations uh, use the phrase atoning sacrifice in exchange for propitiation. And while it's true that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, that doesn't actually convey the same thing that propitiation does. While I agree that it's maybe a little easier, although I don't know how often we say atoning sacrifice in everyday conversation either, it may be a little easier for us to wrap our heads around that word versus propitiation, but I don't think it actually gets to the meaning. The, what, what Paul and John and, and the writer of Hebrews are saying when they use the word propitiation in the context of the sacrifice of Christ is this, that Jesus Christ took upon himself all of God's anger. That's what happened on the cross. See, God is angry at sin, and rightfully so. We are too. When when someone sins against you, aren't you angry? You should be. Right? If someone stole your car from the church parking lot, you'd be like, what, do they have no fear of God? Why are they stealing cars from park, church parking lots? Right? You would be furious, and you should be. But multiply that by about a billion times, and we get just a sliver of the anger that God must feel at sin. And so here's the deal. We can take the judgment that God has reserved for sin. We can take that on ourselves by our stubborn pride, by our unrepentance, by our deserved growing wickedness, by our injustice. We can be just like them and not change, not turn, not believe on our Savior. And God's anger will be brought on us. But I don't know anybody that wants to take that deal. When, when the offer of the gospel is God can be mad at you or he can put all of his anger onto Jesus for you. Isn't that a better deal? <laughs> yes, it is, right? And that's what the word propitiation conveys. And I think it's important that we understand some of these bigger, fancier words that maybe aren't common to us because it fills out the meaning. So when we look at this, Romans 3, in the context of what Paul's teaching, let's, let's just understand what he's saying there as we get to that word. And so here, let's start in verse 21. It says, But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I will stop there. It's not quite the end of that sentence yet. But Paul's saying this, that the righteousness of God, um, what God... it stands for as true and right and good. All that's, all that's there in the righteousness of God, that's a packed phrase. Um, he says that has all been manifested or has been shown or displayed apart from the law 
although, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we can see the righteousness of God outside of the law, but the law and the prophets uh, really demonstrate it. And then it says that there is no distinction. There's no difference between whether you were born as a Jewish person or whether you were born as a Gentile. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Every one of us is a... uh, is deserving of God's anger because we're sinners. Every one of us deserves it. Every one of us has earned it. And then, but then it says this, we have, we have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's what's happening. Here's what Paul's saying, and that's a, that's a, you know, Romans is just full of packed sentences. You could probably preach like one verse, you know, through Romans every Sunday because they're just so full. But here's the thing. Uh, he's saying that God, in, in putting Jesus forward as the appeaser of God's anger, as the one who is going to take God's anger upon himself to remove it from us, Right? So God's anger is transferred from us to Jesus on the cross. He does that, he says, Paul says that God did that to show his divine forbearance or his patience. He did that to show his righteousness at the present time. And, and he did that to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is amazing. God can be, in, in the gospel, we have the answer to all of these big questions. How can God be satisfied by, by sinners and accept sinners if he's perfect and get, can't be in the presence of sin? How can he accept a bunch of sinners into his family? How can he do that at, at, and not inflict all this wrath on those sinners? The answer is Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So he is both just because the punishment for sin has been paid, but he can also be the justifier, the one who makes all these sinners like you and me righteous. He can be both of those things. He can be just and justifying people simultaneously because of Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And I know it's a little bit, you know, it's, there's, there's some complexity here. And obviously we, we understand that it's, it's not easy to wrap our heads around this. But this is the fact that God can be just. That is to deal with sin. He can deal with sin as he should. And he can justify. That is pardon sinners. Because Jesus took God's anger upon himself. So what God is saying to Israel in that time is that this, this is a foreshadowing of the reality of sin, that sin needs to be 
dealt with. It needs to be punished. It needs to be, to be just. There has to be justice. And he's, he's exemplifying that in the, in the people of Israel through their rebellion. He's using this. But ultimately, we know that this is not the end of the story. God doesn't destroy his people ultimately. No, he actually, even in the midst of their judgment, preserves them and protects them and keeps them, keeps a remnant of them safe and secure, leading through history all the way to Jesus, who would then once and for all be the one who could take God's anger away from sinners. So when you believe in Jesus, God doesn't look at you and is angry at you. He's not mad at you. That when I when I there's a ministry um, that it's an online ministry. They post blogs and, and sermons and things. And but it's called God's not mad at you. And when I first came across that, I was like, really? He's not? I I, I kind of struggled with that. So I'm like, I'm I'm a sinner. Isn't he mad at me? But when I started to think about this, the answer is no, he's not mad at you if you believe in Jesus. Why? Because he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Because Jesus was put forth as a propitiation for our sins. Which means that all of God's anger at you and me for our sin as long as we've put our faith and trust in Christ, has been moved off of us, has been taken from us, and it was placed on Christ on that cross. What good news. It's amazing news that we can stand before God, not under condemnation, but under grace. We can stand before God and truly say that Romans 8.1 is true, that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if we're in Christ Jesus, that means there's no condemnation for me, which means there's no anger from God towards me. Why? Because Jesus took all of his anger. He's ma- Jesus took the brunt of God's fury and wrath. So I don't have to and you don't have to if we believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That is an amazing and an incredible truth that we, I don't think we reflect on enough. I I think that what what should drive our hearts as we as we struggle with sin, right? Here's the thing. We you sin, I sin, we sin in our thoughts, we sin in our actions, we sin in our words. And when we're confronted by that sin and we're convicted about that sin, uh, we could do one of two things. We could either be um, just distraught at the fact that we sinned again and God must really be mad at us this time. Or we can preach the gospel to ourselves and say, you know, I've, I sinned. But you know what Jesus did on the cross? He took the anger that God had for that sin upon himself so that I can now repent of that sin without any condemnation or fear. I can turn away from that sin now. Why? Because that sin has already been dealt with on the cross. It's already been paid. It's it's already been taken care of and Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross so that that sin, that individual particular thought action or word, whatever it else it may be, that 
particular thing is now not held against me. And that could lead us to say, well, then let's keep on sinning. So grace may abound. But Paul says no, (laughs) because what happens to someone who's experienced grace is that they recognize that the gospel frees us to love and worship him and be grateful. It doesn't, it doesn't compel us to be under law. It frees us so that we can actually do what's right and live out of a gratitude for Jesus because he's done all that for us. It should transform our, our lives because we recognize that every sin we've ever committed and the anger that God rightly has for that sin is not on me, it's on Jesus So God's not mad at me. Not if I believe in Christ. It doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us. But God's discipline is not like our discipline. When we discipline our kids, it's usually because we're mad at them. They've done something and we react. Until we start to get sanctified in that, we don't always give discipline to our kids the way we should. God doesn't discipline out of anger. He disciplines out of love. That's what Hebrews tells us. He disciplines those he loves. And we do too as parents in our, in our better moments. But generally, we, we're reacting to something in a moment. God doesn't behave that way. And God's anger is not the reason for his, his um, uh, discipline. His discipline on us is so that we would know he loves us and come back to him. Right? So he'll, he'll do things to get our attention and to make us turn from our sin. But it's not out of anger because Jesus took all the anger that God has for us on himself. That's wonderful news. That's the best news. And it is the, it's the news that we celebrate every Sunday, ultimately, even though we may talk about something different from week to week. That really is why we gather. It is to celebrate the grace of Jesus for us. That he would take Wretched sinners like us. We sing it when we sing Amazing Grace. A a, a wretch like me. We are wretched sinners, but we're also saints that have been transformed by the grace of God. And so he looks at us, not in anger, but in love and, and grace. And that's what we celebrate. And that's really what the table of the Lord's Supper reminds us of. As we approach that table, none of us walk to those tables because we're worthy We walk to those tables knowing we're not worthy, but that Jesus invites us anyway because he's he's taken upon himself the anger of God and has become for us the propitiation for our sins. And so we can go boldly to that table knowing that we've been invited there by our crucified and risen Savior. And we would invite you um, as we sing in a moment as we, as we reflect on what we've just seen in his word, um, I would invite you as, as believers in Jesus to go to the table and know that you have been, you, that all of God's wrath has been satisfied and we can walk in freedom because of that. So let me pray for us and I'll invite the team to come up and lead us in some songs. Our, our great God, we thank you um, for your grace it's undeserved, it's unearned, and we know as we sit under your word, we know that we deserve your anger. Just as much as Israel deserved it, we deserve it too. We know that, Lord. We, we confess that. 
but we also just show our gratitude to you for taking upon yourself the, the anger that should have been mine and placing it upon your son. Would you help us, Lord, to rest in that? And we pray that as we worship you, it would be with joyful and glad hearts in the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.